Welcome to this week's Investors Chronicle Personal Finance Podcast. I'm Lenora Walters and joining me today are Kate Bailey, Deputy Personal Finance Editor at Investors Chronicle and special guest Jason Hollands, Managing Director at Tilney Best Invest. If you're an investor rather than a trader, you're in it for the long haul. So the returns that matter are the ones that are made over several years or decades. With this in mind, Kate has been looking at which UK managers and funds have performed best over the last decade. Kate, to start off with, what types of manager and fund have done well over the last 10 years? Well, in fact, it is quite a mixture of kind of styles and and kind of asset classes that have done well um, over the long term. So it's, it's managers that people will be very familiar with. At the top of the list are Mark Slater at MFM Slater Growth. Um, that's Michael um, Linzel and Nick Train at CF Linzel Train UK Equity, Francis Brook, Troy Trojan Income. So it's quite a mix. You've got value style investors in there and more growth style. But it is notable that income fund managers appear quite a lot and certainly fund managers invested in the more kind of growthy stocks have done well as well and I guess there are kind of obvious reasons for that partly due to you know low rates pushing up some of the kind of more consistent income payers some of these kind of maybe bond proxy stocks particularly in the past three years Um, so that's kind of pushed them to the top and small caps have also kind of been in there quite a lot and that's due to the kind of relative outperformance of small over over large cap in in recent years. Okay Um, so uh, yeah these have had a good run but are they likely to be the top performers over the years ahead? I had a chat with this so this list is compiled by TD Direct I was having a chat with their chief investment officer, uh, Michelle McGrade. And so she was saying that, in fact, what we might see um, is a bit of a switch from growth style investors outperforming to maybe value style investors if we do get um, a switch in the cycle. And I guess arguments for that would be if we get this kind of hard Brexit and we get a tougher market as a result of that, if inflation does continue to tick up. If we just get generally tougher conditions, and in fact, growth style investors might tread water a bit, and those funds and stocks which have been performing really well might come off, and some of the more contrarian managers might start to outperform. Obviously, value has not been a good place to be invested in in the past three years, but that could that could turn if we get a market switch. What kind of value funds might outperform? So I guess we would get funds like um, Majedi UK Equity, um, Alistair Mundy, who runs Investec UK Special Situations. He he could come back into fashion, um, and maybe Richard Buxton, who runs Old Mutual UK Alpha. I mean, it's notable that many of these value managers do appear in this in this list of the top twenty five. Um, in the past decade. But what we're saying here is, you know, maybe those ones who were further down the bottom of the list could be at the top in the next few years if we do see a return to value investing. Okay. Now, you've also been speaking to um, an IC Top 100 fund manager who focuses on the UK. Um, What's his investment focus and how's he been doing? So, yes, this is Neil Herman, uh, Henderson Smaller Companies Investment Trust. And I guess the the key here is smaller rather than necessarily small um, because he invests in in small and mid-caps, but actually has tended to favour mid-caps. So he invests with this very kind of solid stock picking um, mentality. He uses this model, the four M's, which he says is model, management, money and momentum. So he's basically looking for stocks which can keep kind of growing, um, keep you know generating cash over the long term. So some of his holdings, and in fact, he was highlighting AIM holdings in, in the, our recent conversation. 
things like Accesso Technology, which is this online ticketing platform um, that owns the IP for QBot. So that's a ride reservation system that people like Merlin um, theme parks use. So it's it's kind of companies which have quite a, quite a good niche, quite a good high barriers to entry, um, who will be able to keep generating money over the long term. Notably, they're not that cheap, the companies he's buying, but he says, you know, what you're doing is paying for long-term growth here. He's not worried about buying, you know, the the cheapest things out there. He's worried about quality. Has he done well recently? He has done well recently. Um, He's got a very good track record. So over 10 years, the trust returned 203.9% compared to just over 80% for the benchmark. So that's quite an impressive record, really. And what about recently? How has he done since Brexit? Yeah, so he has admitted that he was not prepared for Brexit. The portfolio wasn't exactly positioned. So it has not done as well recently as a result of that, um, but is expecting to kind of outperform from here. Okay, even though his holdings are fairly expensive. Even though expensive, reassuringly, is expensive was the way he put it. Okay. Now, um, Neil obviously likes um, mid-caps, but uh, they have been expensive. Jason, do you think mid-cap funds are a good place to be at the moment? Mid-caps have been the standout performer for many years now in the UK stock market, given much higher returns than uh, larger companies and smaller companies. I think... In the current environment, uh, probably the market uh, uh, is going to be, be more favourable for very large companies which have very high overseas earnings because of the, the currency impact as they tra- translate those dollar earnings back into UK profits. But I think you know if you've got a long-term view, having a, a good slug of exposure to mid-caps does make sense. And while they bore the initial brunt of the knee-jerk reaction to the EU referendum vote because there are more sort of cyclical and domestically focused businesses found in that space... Um, there is an argument now that that actually it could become a quite interesting um, area in terms of increased M&A activity because, of course, the weaker pound means that actually UK assets look very, very cheap to overseas investors and you might start seeing um, uh, a little bit of a, a international M&A, perhaps um, uh, it, it, you know, a lot of it in that uh, mid-cap space. So I certainly would not ignore um, uh, the, the mid-cap part of the market. Most investors, though, I think can get exposure through sort of multi-cap funds. So there are you know, lots of very well-managed funds that can invest right across the UK market cap spectrum, but which typically will have a very high allocation to that part of the market. Lion Trust special situations would be one um, example, or Axa Framlington UK select opportunities. Those types of funds you know, have always uh, um, uh, typically had a, a large amount of exposure there, and indeed some of the funds that were men- mentioned earlier from the TD list. Okay. Um, bearing in mind what we were saying before about a, you know, a possible shift to value, what kinds of UK funds and managers do you expect to perform well in the years ahead? Well, I don't quite wholly buy the argument that it's time to sort of shift um, aggressively uh, your style focus into value. I think actually the sorts of funds that I, you know, I would be looking to buy at the moment in this market environment would be the likes of Even Load Income, would be the likes of J.O. Hambro UK Opportunities, would be uh, Lion Trust Special Situations, because uh, these are funds that target businesses with which are high quality have very visible cash flow, are typically in, um, uh, not in capital-intensive businesses where capital can get tied up in servicing assets. Um, and um, the, these are also um, funds, I think, that tend to go for businesses that, that have very resilient models that you know either have very strong, strong brands that kind of keep them going through the economic cycle because I think there's no doubt that whilst the you know, initial 
data uh, post the referendum is a, a lot more encouraging than the doom and gloom mongers suggested. It's going to be a, a, a you know a, a bumpy ride over the next couple of years. There's a lot of uncertainties out there, and so I would want to go to managers who focus on companies that are very high quality and also have high international earnings. Okay, um, pick me up on what you said about uncertainty and a bumpy ride. Are there any kinds of UK funds investors should avoid in the near future? I, I actually think index funds. I think. Um, you know, it, uh, this is no, no longer the time, I think, just to be in the market. I think you're going to have to be very uh, selective. Um, actually, most active managers have beaten uh, the all share index o- over the last five years, yeah, quite convincingly so. Uh, ironically, really, when index funds have become much more popular over that time period. Um, different kettle of fish altogether for the US. Mm-hmm. But I think, you know, in a market where we've had a, a very prolonged bull market driven up by the sort of the artificial tide of QE. Uh, clearly, all ships rise with the tide in that environment. But I think, you know, this current environment isn't going to go on forever. Yes, we have a QE and low rates in the UK at the moment, but there are signs around the globe that maybe the the ECB will start tapering down its QE programme. They've begun tweaking QE in Japan. Uh, the US might raise rates again later this year. So I think we're going to move from an environment where, where it's you've been able to make money just by being in the market, and that could be through a very low-cost index fund. So one where I think you need to be a lot more careful and be mindful of sort of navigating the risks that are out there. And I think that really leans me towards um, more sort of uh, focused funds, uh, stock-picky funds, as opposed to um, funds like index trackers or indeed quasi-trackers. Okay. Um, bearing in mind this uncertainty over Brexit negotiations and other issues, how much should you allocate to the UK at the moment? Well, actually, I think, you know, uh, it, it, it's it's all a relative um, uh, game at the moment. You know, our view is actually asset prices across the globe are too expensive, driven up by the artificial stimulus of relentless money printing around the world. So uh, we're quite cautious. We're, so, mm. you know, we, we're sort of underweight where we would be on a longer term view in both equities and bonds at the moment. So we're not huge raging bulls of any particular market. But I think on a relative scale, actually, the UK looks looks reasonable. It's, it's more reasonable than the US on a valuation basis. The yield is also attractive. There's a 4% yield on the UK stock market. Certainly very attractive to compared to uh, UK government bond yields, which are about 0.8% at the moment. Whereas, you know, America looks very, very expensive at a time when the growth outlook is weak. And of course, the other thing to bear in mind is anyone who already owns in, international investments w- will be uh, have benefited from that diversification because as the pounds where you can, the returns on um, their US and European funds have, and J- Japanese funds have been flattered by being in, exposed to other currencies. But of course, the pound won't just relentlessly weaken. It, it, it's probably going to be volatile as we go through the EU negotiations. But I don't think this is necessarily an environment where I want to be taking my much weaker pound and using it to buy very expensive US shares, for example, with that weaker pound. So I think probably that leans me to be probably more more relatively in favour of investing in UK shares, which, of course, are not a direct play on the UK economy anyway. It's a very international market. Okay, thank you, Jason and Kate. And you can see the full list of top performing managers over the last decade on the website at www.investorschronicle.co.uk. Now, this week's portfolio clinic features an investor who has a large portfolio, mainly composed of investment trusts, 
and who wants to preserve and maybe grow the capital for his children to use several years down the line for expenses such as university and first home deposits. Uh, the reader has around a quarter of his assets in Asia and emerging markets because he thinks this is where growth will be strongest. Jason, for parents investing at a time horizon of about 18 years, um, are Asia and emerging markets um, an appropriate area to allocate to? Absolutely. What I concern me a little bit with this portfolio is, yes, the individual holdings generally pretty good. It's absolutely right because uh, this reader is quite young and got a long-term view that he should be uh, very much biased towards equities. But actually, if you looked at the holdings, um, including Asia exposure within some of his global funds, it was more like a third of the underlying portfolio was exposed to Asia, Asia on emerging markets. And I think that's just too high. Mm. Um, I think, you know, really, you know, even, even in a quite aggressive portfolio, it should probably be about half of what it currently is. So I would say, you know, 15% is, you know, pretty racy. And I just feel that was, it was too much. And there are, of course, a lot of risks out there at the moment in, in, the, in those regions. OK, um, bearing that in mind, um, what kind of areas and assets should parents investing for children over about 18 years um, have in their portfolios alongside this around 15% to um, Asia and emerging markets? Well, sure. I mean, you know, for that time of time scale, which is extremely long, focus on equities. Um, but I think it's getting the balance right between uh, developed markets and um, uh, emerging markets. Uh, clearly, you know, the, the, the biggest developed markets out there are the US, um, Japan, Europe and the UK. I think um, what I noticed with the, um, this reader's portfolio is he had n- no exposure whatsoever to Japan. Now, of course, people do get negative about Japan because it's often cited that it has very poor demographics and ageing population, etc., etc., which is true. China is actually l- looking quite similar to how Japan looked sort of two decades ago um, when it's actually staring at um, population uh, contraction. So I, I think... Um, the important thing to understand with Japan is whatever you think of the health of the Japanese economy, it is still home to some really good world-class businesses, you know, particularly in certain industries, whether that's car manufacturing, uh, some of the sort of technology-type businesses. There are good healthcare businesses in, in Japan that are international businesses. So I think it would be wrong to ignore that market entirely. And one of the other things that is attractive about Japan potentially is one of the few markets where there's scope for companies to grow their dividends, albeit from a very low base, because Japanese companies companies are very, very cash rich. Okay. Um, now, what the Swedish did have a substantial allocation to was property investment companies. Um, he's a growth investor of long term horizon. Are property funds appropriate for somebody like that? I think property can be, uh, is, uh, you know, it's a useful source of yield. It can be very dependable if the underlying tenants are of good quality um, and it can help diversify a portfolio um, uh, away from um, just shares, which are obviously particularly volatile. But I think, you know, it was all, it was not far off 20% exposure to these. And, and to my mind, that's probably too much, really, for a growth investor who presumably doesn't need to draw the income at this stage. So I think where this could be useful for him is, you know, normally um, investors might have a little bit of bond exposure in a portfolio just to diversify um, the portfolio and take some of the risk out of a portfolio. But the bond market is is in, in a topsy-turvy state at the moment. And I don't think that's a particularly attractive place for him to be. So owning some property, for example, is a sensible way of achieving a little bit of diversification beyond shares. But I think um, that level of exposure is way too high. Okay. Um, just thinking about the um, equity and alternative asset split in this kind of long-term growth portfolio, roughly what should it be? Well, I would say, you know, uh, sort of 
75% equities um, is pretty aggressive. Um, and, uh, you know, he's not far, far off that level of equity exposure. Um, so, um, uh, you know, if you've got, say, 5% in, in commercial property, and then he might consider a little bit of exposure to sort of absolute return type strategies, um, and possibly a little bit um, in commodities, and, and namely, you know, um, I, I would probably have a little bit of gold exposure in there, just as an insurance policy against, you know, an, um, another round of, um, of sort of central bank failure of um, uh, people losing faith in central banks. So, uh, you know, that's really much, much more of a sort of a little bit of a, a play on a potential collapse in confidence in central banks. But I think, you know, the property exposure should probably be about 5%, maybe, you know, up to 10% in absolute return type strategies. But the bulk should certainly be in equity funds. Okay. And um, what absolute return funds and non-equity funds um, would you suggest? Sure. Well, I think, um, uh, I mean, absolute return funds covers a whole manner of uh, different investment strategies. Um, it's a sort of, in some ways, a fairly meaningless title. But you might consider some, you know, long short exposure, for example, thread needle, UK absolute alpha. Um, or indeed a sort of you know global macro fund. JP Morgan have one. JP Morgan global global macro opportunities um, might be worth considering. Okay, and just finally, are there any kind of assets or funds that you should avoid in a long term children's portfolio? Cash definitely. It's quite shocking to see actually that since the Junior ISA was launched, if you look at the data kept by HMRC, is Something like seventy to seventy-five percent of these have gone into cash. It's a completely pointless place to tie your money up for, you know, up to eighteen years. You know, we're in an environment where cash accounts are paying virtually nothing anyway. So you're going to be um, seeing the value of that cash eroded over time by inflation. And actually, as you, as you well know, that from this tax year. Um, each of us can earn up to £1,000 if you're a basic rate ta- taxpayer, tax-free, just in an ordinary savings account. So uh, that's really rendered um, cash ISAs and c- mm. cash-based junior ISAs completely pointless product. OK, thank you, Jason. Some uh, really useful suggestions there. Now, emerging markets have been doing well this year, and not surprisingly, many investors have been tempted to go in. When you invest in any area, you probably want to make a good return and outperform major markets. But if a market's doing really well, like emerging markets are doing just now, you could be tempted just to get the return of the market via a cheap passive fund. So, Kate, in emerging markets, what are the pros and cons of active and passive funds? I guess the first obvious uh, pro of passive is, is the cost point. They're obviously much cheaper and you can get an enormous now spread of markets, of kind of stocks in passive funds, whether ETF or, or tracker, um, particularly from indices like the MSCI IMI. So that's the entire investable universe, which you can capture via an ETF. Um, so that's, you know, two obvious pros for passive. Downside is obviously that with passive, you're getting everything. And in emerging markets, there is a real argument for being selective because, I mean, particularly in the areas that we've seen doing really well, you've got Latin America, Brazil. Um, there are some markets there which arguably still have very large you know, fundamental concerns and have been rallying on the back of things like political hope. Now, those things might not continue to outperform, particularly if uh, sentiment goes off the boil on those. Now, do you really want to be exposed to Brazil when that happens? Same could be said of things like financials, banks and emerging markets, uh, you know, arguably a less kind of secure place to be. And China. I mean, people have very different views on China, but ultimately China does still have a mushrooming debt (laughs) um, mountain to tackle. And 
people seem to have kind of stopped thinking about that for a while. But when the markets start thinking about it again, we could see a big wobble there. So if you are kind of slightly more concerned about those areas which have really been rallying, then you don't want to be in a passive fund. Arguably, you do want to be with an active manager who's going to choose maybe areas like India, um, maybe some of the more kind of emerging bits of emerging markets, <laughs> uh, which which are kind of off the beaten track, maybe cheaper. I, th- I think arguably it's, it's an area where you might want to be selective. And also, at the end of last year, maybe it would have been good to be um, passive just before we had this kind of stellar rally. But things are looking a bit more overheated now, not to the same extent as in 2013, before the last crisis. But, you know, arguably, we're kind of in the middle or or approaching a a bit of a peak here in terms of sentiment. Um, So whether or not you want to be getting into a passive at that point is is debatable, I would say. Okay. Um, Jason, would you go um, active or passive in emerging markets at the moment? I definitely go active. There's lots of things that keep me up at night worrying. I'm I'm a natural warrier. We talked about Brexit earlier. That, frankly, is a a vicar's picnic compared to what could happen if um, China experiences a credit crisis. You know, we're really worried about the growth of debt in China. In fact, since the the original global financial crisis, China has accumulated as much debt as America did in the entire 20th century. It is at eye-popping levels. And there's vast overcapacity in China. So they've been building up capacity in production of things like aluminium and steel at a time when um, the prices have slumped. And one does worry that actually they're now caught in this trap where they're just selling this stuff cheaply internationally because they simply need to service the debt. And they're doing it, you know, it, it doesn't, it defies normal economics. So China really, really worries me. And if you buy a, a passive ETF following any of the sort of uh, common emerging market indices, you're going to have a whacking great exposure to China. Okay. With that in mind, um, what um, active emerging markets funds do you think are good bets at the moment? I think, I mean, investment trusts are always a good way of getting exposure to these more volatile markets. JP Morgan Emerging Market Investment Trust is one is one that... that uh, I've liked for a long time now. If you want to buy funds, um, Fidelity Emerging Markets Fund is a really well-managed fund. And Somerset Emerging Market Dividend is another way of playing the emerging market theme, but with a focus on companies that are sort of, you know, generating cash and paying out dividends, which is usually a sign of of business being shareholder friendly. Okay, thank you, Jason. That's all we've got time for this week, so it just remains to thank Kate Bealey, Deputy Personal Finance Editor at Investors Chronicle, and Jason Hollands, Managing Director at Tilney Best Invest. You can read more on the best funds of a decade, building a long-term growth portfolio, and whether to be active or passive in emerging markets in this week's issue of Investors Chronicle on the website. Thank you for listening and have a good weekend. 